This is the Women Emerging Expedition Podcast, so you can follow the ups and downs and the roundabouts of the expedition and play your part in them. 24 women started on the 28th of May 2022 on this virtual expedition that will take nine months. We are women from across the world determined to find an approach to leadership that resonates with women. We'll be successful so that women the world over will be able to say, if that's leadership, I'm in. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Julia Middleton here, expedition leader. We are 11 weeks away from the completion of the expedition, which will be in February 2023. Last week's episode and this week's episode have been sort of devoted to saying, what's the context in which we as leaders are going to be leading? If our approach to leadership is going to resonate with women, it's going to resonate with women in what context? What's going on in the world that will influence how we lead? So last week, we had some fantastic input on the environment and climate change, on geopolitics and in the legal framework globally that give us a real sense of what's going on. This week's podcast episode is devoted to AI with two very remarkable women talking about AI, first Leila and then Nicole. And then once they've finished, we're going to go and look at one of my big blind spots, how the financial systems of the world are operating and are likely to change in the future and how this will influence the context in which we as leaders are leading. So Layla first on AI. Technology that Layla delights in and is deeply wary about and shouts at us as leaders, shouts at us as women leaders to reframe our approach to AI before it's too late. Today in the world, we're facing many challenges from climate change and poverty to displacement and social injustice. And in that context, innovation is critical to helping us tackle these issues. And AI, no doubt, is one of the most powerful technologies of, of our time. And it is um, currently being deployed across both our personal lives and also professional lives. It's, um, and it's being used in some really interesting and important ways, um, whether it's to detect diseases like skin cancer and malaria and then recommend treatments or to predict natural disasters before they happen and um, therefore enabling, enabling us to prevent loss of life or loss of uh, resources and infrastructure, or maybe even to reach more uh, people with the information they need, like healthcare and education, and do that at the massive scale. And at the same time, a big part of that context is that while um, AI's potential to serve humans, serve uh, serve communities is is undeniable. Um, so is AI's ability to cause many adverse impacts and do that at an unprecedented scale, which is an important part of the context. 
So we've got um, massive problems to solve. We have this very powerful technology that is sort of a, a general, generally applicable across everything we do and care about, yet at the same time, this technology comes with many challenges and risks. We do have this kind of rapidly closing window of opportunity to design and sort of shape the direction of AI so it is um, actually humane, designed for humans. It is equitable and also um, it's ethical um, and um, aligned also with the, with many of the regulations that are either already in place or that are coming. Um, maybe just to explain, there are. There are a number of examples today of AI systems being designed and also being deployed um, to either unintentionally or intentionally make discriminatory decisions, like who gets a job, who gets access to healthcare, social security services, or even finance, like credit, to surveil people, uh, both in public spaces but also in a workplace, or to encroach on privacy through uh, the misuse of our data. You might ask why? Well, one of the reasons uh, is that AI is not perfect. It's not magic. It is um, really a reflection of uh, our own human imperfections as designers of AI systems, our biases, our um, unfairness, our injustices, but at a more, much more massive scale. And this is something that all leaders really need to be aware of, both of the uh, potential of AI and applicability to a wide range of important use cases, uh, but also the risks that um, AI introduces, again, in all aspects of our personal and professional life. As leaders, we also need to be intentional about who builds AI and who deploys it for what purposes and also with what values that we prioritize. Just explain what you mean by values. The values, um, anytime we're creating a system, we are introducing values. So whether our, our own individual values or the values from the institution that we're part of or the societal values. So in a case of, let's say, designing a system, we might value, let's say, privacy over productivity. So how that might manifest is that we might not deploy certain systems like surveillance systems in the employment setting in order to protect employees' privacy rather than understand and the productivity gains. So that would be, again, setting the objectives and then designing the system to deliver on those objectives. Also deciding, you know, we can do so much with AI, but the question is like, should we? But we need to recognize that it's not magic. It's not perfect. It's a tool that we get to set the objectives for and decide how we design it and where and how we use it. Really focusing with AI on the use cases that are on using in a way that augments, not replaces or disintermediates people, that enhances um, our uniquely human capabilities like collaboration and empathy, communication, and complements our skills 
our and our knowledge rather than this intermediate set or reduces it because AI potentially could do it better. One of the new skills that leaders need to have is the ability to work with AI systems effectively and safely. So to give you an example, being able to know when to accept AI recommendations. So let's say you're a doctor and AI has diagnosed um, something and is potentially recommending a treatment. So knowing when to accept it and when to overrule it. So augmenting that with your own intelligence and knowledge of the of the broader context. We've been actually designing AI systems to replace rather than augment human intelligence. So rather than acting as collaborators that are enhancing humanity, we've sort of set the objective of efficiency and productivity and focus mostly on how do we really replace much of you know, what humans can do and be intentional about creating more of the collaborators that can augment our knowledge and our skills and also give us more time to do things that are, again, uniquely human. So AI cannot do the scoping for us or the concluding for us. That's right. AI is a, um, a, collab- as a collaborator rather than the decision maker. Human is a decision maker. Human gets to decide what problems do we solve, but also at the end, how do we do that? AI has an incredible is an incredible powerful technology that can find some really interesting patterns in large sets of data and do it much faster than humans. The other thing that goes back to the people part that is important, especially because these systems really need to be uh, representative and meeting the needs of very diverse communities, that is that we need to hire and empower diverse talent. Again, AI is not perfect, and that is partly due um, to a lack of diversity and representation on the teams that are deciding what problems get to be solved with AI and designing and deploying them. Homogeneity reflects in AI in ways that uh, are incredibly dangerous for our society because AI is really... Um, again, mere reflection of our own biases, our our own unfairness, our own beliefs, our own injustices. Ultimately, if you have a group that is homogenous, not only deciding what problem should be solved, because that's also where bias is introduced, but how to do it and who should have access to the solution, we end up in a world that is where AI systems could be scaling really discriminatory practices and entrenching the inequality that we already have. As you navigate all of this as a leader, are the charlatans or indeed even rats out there trying to encourage us to do the wrong things with AI? All the time. So there's both. I mean, there are sort of, it's not black or white. So we have unintentional misuse, and that could be addressed with, you know, AI literacy and some of this awareness. Then 
we have on the other end of the spectrum, intentional misuse. So let's say AI systems being used for surveillance. And then we have so many kind of degrees in between setting the wrong objectives and let's say optimizing for efficiency and productivity at the cost of human well-being. So the time is now to understand it, to use it for the right problems, and to have the right processes and people in place to actually guide the deployment, the design and deployment of AI. So don't wait, get, you know, understand how you can use it, but also just be intentional about how you do it. Thank you, Leila. It's ringing in my head. AI is not magic and it does not replace human skills. Uh, You have made the case. It's firmly, certainly in my head. Now let's move on to Nicole, who sort of is going to catch the ball in this sort of relay. And Nicole, I think, will talk about some of the elements that are front of brain for her on the subject of AI that she feels that we, we just need to wake up to, starting with the speed at which things are, are moving and introducing us to the concept of compounding. Um, so the compounding thing is it's, you know, the there's five major areas. There's uh, data, which is where AI is. Um, there's materials, energy, food, and transportation. And these five areas are all having AI come on top of them and are compounding with one another because it takes the exponential curves and puts grease on them. Because an example would be five years ago, I, I was, it was when um, AI was first getting applied to material science. And I was talking to a guy who creates materials. And he said that prior to that in the community, they would, the humans who do this would basically come up with a new, you know, maybe six to seven new materials. Like mankind would develop all of mankind, like all the professionals who worked in this space would identify six to seven new materials a year. And at this time that I spoke to him because of AI, they were at 36,000 per year. But, and that's happening in all the different areas. So to think about compounding, a new material might be a substrate that you can grow food on that then dissolves. So then you have materials and food and data all combining. And it combines in sort of like quick, slippery ways that most people are not tracking this combination. That's one of the things that brings me a lot of hope, especially around climate Uh, and carbon capture and that sort of thing is that I think that there are these compounding pieces that uh, we haven't seen yet. The second thing that people are not really thinking about is the full impact of longevity. And, And a lot of it is that, you know, there's the shift from, you know, lifespan to health span, but also the reality that, you know, the, the drugs that we should get in about 10 to 15 years are really going to change society in in big ways. 
And some of the things that we have to be mindful of and that especially women should be tracking. One, uh, women's longevity is deeply tied to women's hormones. And so to solve the longevity problem, to really solve the vitality, so not just lifespan, but health span for women, you also have to really understand female hormones uh, and to understand female hormones, you have to understand the female reproductive system. But one of the things that will come about from women being able to have a, have a, uh, a child at any time in their lives of their choosing is it's kind of the end of the mediocre man. <laughs> like his time is short. Because if you think about like all of the women who like put up with, you know, nonsense because they're trying to get that baby out. Like that's going to be done. And then also when women get this ability to be, you know, much more selective in timing, when the clock is off, like the world thinks we're feisty now, we're really going to get feisty then. And so that's like, you know, 10, 15 years away. I have to say that I'm just going to say it. It's not a bad thing that we, it's going to be another 15 years before some of this stuff is good. (laughs) You know, there's a, there's a cohort that, well, it's just time. (laughs) I'm thinking like old mind, like there's some old mindsets that, you know. um, It's all right, Nicole, I can cope. (laughs) I'm quietly calculating. 64 is what I am. Add 15 years. Which category do I come into? It's all right. (laughs) I can cope. I really can. But I actually wanted to push Nicole a bit more on compounding and how compounding combined with longevity might have some unexpected consequences, especially on equity. One of the things about equity with longevity is lots of things compound. Things of value compound over time. So today we have compound interest on money, which it's like if you miss compounding, then, you know, a little bit, you know, even a a little bit of interest that compounds over time, you know, on the back end or or later years, you know, it's, it's, it's a foundational amount of money, the difference. Um, And poor people typically don't have access to compounding. Another thing is if you compound relationships, you know, it's like, friend groups. I'm starting to clock into friends that I've had for 20 years. I have some friends now that I've had for 30 years, adult friendships, not childhood friendships. And those friendships are just, you know, really needy friendships, the ones that have stuck. Right. And so when you're having like really long health spans, if that, if access to that is not into the things that allow for that, is not fully distributed, then you have things like, like that the inequality that we see in our society, it's just like, you know, that level of compounding is uncatchable. It's like completely uncatchable. So if you had, you know, rather than, you know, 40 years to compound, if you had a hundred years to compound and, you know, and if you have a hundred years to compound, then you also have a whole family and let's just say you actually work together, like family groups that compound together, it will be absolutely uncatchable. Difficult today already, but it isn't impossible for someone to 
you know, to come from behind. But with compounding coming from behind is going to be, you know, even more of a massive. So I think that's something to think about. The last part is on uh, deep humanness. In the future, that is coming. And that is actually already the beginnings of which is already here. Um, there's going to be a, well, how do I put this? So software is taking more and more tasks. And the tasks that it's leaving are very human tasks, like how we work together, how we solve problems together, how we communicate with each other. Uh, and then there's also a whole generation of technology that's coming. So when I describe the generative AIs, I'm talking about Midjourney and Dolly, which are the ones that people know where you tell the image engine, this is what I want, and this is how it feels. And the image engine makes that. And, and what I've noticed is that the most beautiful images are the ones where the description of what the person wants um, and the description of how it feels are the most clear. So, you know, with that last bucket of deep humanness, you know, the decide, the determining factor in success is going to be how human you are, how good you are at connecting with other people and communicating and really coaching and leading uh, from, you know, whatever position you hold, humans to solve big problems, wicked problems, fun problems, um, because that's actually what a, you know, that's, that is what a company is. It might have a legal structure, but it's humans solving problems together. That's also what a community is. And it's also what a couple is. So I think, you know, if I were talking to, you know, a young female professional today, my, you know, suggestion to her would be get really good at coaching, get really good at, you know, at communicating, get really good at conscious leadership, get really good at, you know, these other things, because while it still seems a little messy right now, you know, that will, that will be the defining place. So I'm actually quite optimistic, super optimistic. Thank you, Nicole. I think you and Leila have a common message. That AI is fabulous, as long as we as, as leaders are not sleeping on our watch, that we ask the questions, that we think through the issues, and, and that, that we perform one of the key roles of all leaders, which is to make change less frightening for people and um, more something they can question and interrogate and understand. So now we move away from AI onto the financial systems in which we currently live. Now, this, this is a big, weak, weak point for me. I don't know if you are much better than me on this, but um, I sometimes think that I think a lot about lots of issues about wars and laws and climate change and tech and how governments will legislate. And I think I am sometimes a bit blind on the financial systems that underpin everything that's going on around the world. So I started by asking Paula to educate me a bit. 
The biggest piece of the pie is is public equities, the stock market, and it's around 125 trillion that goes into the stock market. And the global bond market or debt market is a very similar size or even a little bit bigger. And then we have what's called the global alternatives market, which is actually quite a bit smaller at about 10 billion. If we think about where this money actually comes from to go into all these huge places, the large, large part of that is from global pension funds, which ultimately invest in equities, bonds and alternatives. And um, more than half, so about 54% of pension funds assets are in the stock market, about 30% are in debt, and the remainder is in alternatives. 300 largest pension funds account for 24 trillion. And if we think about, you know, a GDP of, let's say, Japan or the UK, it's about three or five trillion. This is this, this huge amounts of huge amounts of money. Um, and the largest pension fund in the world is actually in Japan. So it's something called the GPIF which has got 1.7 trillion alone just for this particular pension fund. Uh, The second is Norway, so probably not where you'd imagine, uh, which is 1.4 trillion, which is Norway's government pension. And the third is the National Pension of Korea, which is about 800 billion. So, you you know, you'd sort of naturally imagine that the largest pension funds in the world are, are maybe US. And actually, if you start to look at the top 20, then roughly 10 of those 20 are actually from the US. And maybe one or two years ago, the dominance of the top 20 would have been also from the Middle East, which has changed in the last year or so. If you look at that list again, probably next year, I'd imagine that probably some of the Middle East uh, firms are going to be back in that, that top 20 again. And it changes so much depending on what is happening around where the sources of capital are coming from and what's happening in in the world at that particular time. Another big group is is family offices. So, um, you know, if we think about the relative size, I've been talking about trillions, um, I think estimates for family offices and these money, the money for family offices come from, you know, corporate where they've made their money or family businesses. There's about seven or eight thousand family offices out there and the sums are around 25 billion that these family offices have deploy AUM assets under management and then you get groups such as insurance companies um high net worth individuals generally sort of aggregate in, in vehicles and whatnot so rich rich people and then the other very very large categories are banks and asset managers and banks and asset managers, if we look globally, the 500 largest asset managers, I believe, <laughs> account for about 130 trillion last year, um, with BlackRock being the largest there with about 10 trillion. A lot of the largest asset managers globally are based in the US. Go back to the family offices for a second. Where are they? So they are very much global. But, you know, you get family offices, let's say, that. Um, the Lego family office or the Brenigmeyer family, which is come from retail. So lots of different sectors where those wealth is coming from all over the world. Very large um, Chinese family offices, very large um, Indian family offices. It's, it's really very, um, very global, very diverse. And then if we think about how these types of sources of capital sort of look at the world, they look at it from a risk return perspective. And so you might expect, let's say, treasury 
to country country debt to, to yield maybe a 4% return. Um, you get corporate debt at 6%, high yield debt's a bit more risky, about 8 to 9%. So generally, except if it's high yield, it seemed to be pretty safe. And, you know, these, these return numbers move around all the time. So I'm talking very, very broad brush here. And then if we look at something like the stock market, um, often the average is around, so let's say it's about 7 to 8% and more if you've got dividends. It's volatile, but it's liquid. You can get your money out if you need to. Alternatives, however, you generally hold your money in that for quite a long time. And something like private equity, you typically hold it for 10, 12, sometimes even 15 years, even longer if it's an infrastructure fund. Something like a venture capital fund is usually something like 20 to 30% return, but it's considered to be to be quite risky. Whenever there is a, a time of crisis or financial instability or um, energy crises and whatnot, you see a retreating to domestic agendas. So after the GFC, and also we're seeing it somewhat now, you see a little bit more regional investment so we see more europe investing in europe us investing in europe in, in the us and, and asia to asia as paula was speaking i felt increasingly like an idiot for not knowing more about this but then again it is very complex and it's not particularly transparent and i think paula probably agrees with that there are so many different parts to this particular puzzle there's so much data out there there's so many different objectives it's um it's pretty hard to follow and and track so the the interesting thing is as it relates to this question but also sustainability and increasing regulation is the requirement to be more transparent and disclose more information and so you know just linking back to this information and where capital flows i think it will become more evident, let's say, if, um, where money is going in the area of sustainability and ESG. And I think there'll be more pressure to disclose publicly people's portfolios and what, what people are doing towards transition. So then I asked Paula how we as leaders can really have or whether we can at all have an impact on what she has just explained to us. And her answer is of course framed by the fact that Paula is very much in the alternatives market. If we took just 1% of pension funds and diverted that into sustainability, that's 240 billion that could go into that particular area. And what we are seeing, and I'm very heavily in this area, is um, investors needing to increasingly decarbonize their portfolios. And people are really at the start of that journey. So whilst is most pension funds have a fiduciary duty to maximize the returns for their pension funds. And if your first goal is to maximize returns, there can be an assumption that if you're prioritizing climate, for example, you won't, you might not get the same returns for your money. Actually, what, what's happened in the last few years is more and more opportunities have come available where you actually can get the same returns. It's, you know, so it's good business sense as well as doing something for the climate. And but, you know, there's such a small amount of an overall pension that's going in towards green investment. It's it's quite extraordinary. So if you can, you know, change the, the language in terms of you know, at state level 
or uh, or regulatory level for pension funds and what they actually invest in you can move more money more quickly you know there there are still states in the in the US that have it's actually against the law to be investing in anything to do with the climate or sustainability because it it's, it goes against let's say the the oil mission of the particular state so I think it is very important to understand how these flows work, what investors are, are looking for, how the money, how money moves. We've seen students all around the world demanding that the universities they're attending think differently about the endowment funds that underpin their work. Is is that a good example? Um, endowments and foundations are things like university pockets or maybe the health foundation. It's a slightly smaller category, but an important one. Um, and we've seen quite a lot of pressure come from, uh, say, university students themselves to make sure that their particular endowment is investing in the right in the right areas. So we've seen some grassroots. I mean, activism might not be the right word in that category, but pressure being put on on their boards and stakeholders to actually move money into the right places. So as of the beginning of this year, there are 180 billion worth of climate funds out there up from, I don't know, maybe 50 billion a couple of years ago. And, and the biggest growth came came from Europe at that particular time. What we're seeing now is many more global funds. And assuming acts like the IRA in the US, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is really driving um, sustainable economies, assuming that still stays and is in place and followed through, um, we're seeing real change actually this year in terms of the amount of funds and opportunities available in the, in the United States. Europe has led quite, quite far from the front as it relates to investing into sustainability and climate. We've seen really important pockets coming from uh, Japan, Australia, um, also a number of the Asian sovereign wealth funds um, really looking into developing their, um, their, their programs. Often the programs that move the fastest are those that are directly in the line of fire from, from bad weather. So we've seen the California state plans putting a lot of capital in. We've seen Singapore put a lot of money because they're obviously on, on, the, on the coast. Um, Australia, similarly. And so often that, that, that's, the, that's the catalyst. Um, um, where, where we do continue to need capital is in the venture capital space, which is more early stage solutions of developing climate. We've got quite a lot of funds starting to focus on growth phase, a series B to D. Um, and then you, you've got a few more funds focused on the slightly later stage, but you need enough to go through the funnel to, to satisfy the, the later stage, later stage funds. Is understanding this almost more important than understanding government? The puzzle for global climate solutions or solutions in general are multifaceted, whether that's regulation, whether that's government, whether it's the consumer, or whether it's money flows. But Often things things do happen quickest where the where the money is moving. Thank you, Paula. And forgive me if um, many of you who are listening to this are much better educated on the financial systems, and that some of that was quite basic. It's um, it uh, it wasn't basic for me. <laughs> I'm I I'm I have a lot to learn. I think I leave this episode, and this may sound like a crazy analogy, but you know, <laughs> as a mother, I have often gone to my children's parents' evenings, and I've gone there and sort of 
thought maybe I should this time I should just sit quietly and listen and accept the views and I shouldn't embarrass my children by asking lots of questions and I shouldn't upset the apple cart by questioning the system of the school. I This time I should be quiet. And, and I pretty well fail on a regular basis. My children largely um, <laughs> try to hide the next parents, teachers' evenings on the basis that I'm that I'm rather more noisy than that, uh, asking endlessly why, 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 what, 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 how, 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 when, when, when. And these two episodes have really reinforced that we as leaders need to be asking why, what, how and when almost all the time because the changes that surround us are so enormous and if we just quietly proceed. It's pretty clear from all the women that we've spoken to that if we just proceed and we don't ask the tough questions, we could get to a quite difficult place. So there are lots of other context interviews we could have done. We've chosen these. There's a lot going on in the world and... um, it's good to think about that as we, as we move towards the last chapter of the expedition and, and face up to the challenge of producing an approach to leadership that resonates with women today in the context today. I hope you found this useful. Lots of love. Talk next week. To become part of our movement and share your thinking with us, subscribe to the podcast and join the Women Emerging group on our website at womenemerging.org. We love all of the messages you send us. Keep them coming.